Hello and welcome to Policy Pod, a podcast from the University of Southampton's Knowledge Brokerage Unit, Public Policy Southampton. My name is Giles, I'm your host, and I have the pleasure of leading Public Policy Southampton, where we work to enhance the local, subnational, national and international policy impacts of research conducted at the University of Southampton. In this episode, I'm joined by Professor Neil Bresloff. Neil is Professor of Biomedical Engineering and Design at the University of Southampton. Hi, Neil. Good to speak to you. Yes, good morning, Giles. So, Neil, before we look forward, let's travel back in time. Tell us about your studies and how you landed here at the University of Southampton. I obtained a place to read engineering science at Oxford University, St. John's College. And that was a three-year course. Strangely, however, at the end of that, um, engineering was the last thing I wanted to pursue as a career. Maybe I shouldn't say that and share that with people, but that's what it was. And I spent nearly 10 years doing other things, which I think uh, aroused in me the recognition that I did actually like engineering and academic engineering. And as a result of that, I obtained a place at Imperial College on their Advanced Mechanical Engineering MSc course. Following that, I then went to Cranfield University for a PhD, which was largely centered on computational fluid dynamics, but in quite a different field to what I'm researching these days, related to uh, combustion. And that led to my first position at the University of Southampton as a research fellow Probably that was 1997, if my memory serves me correctly. And I set about spending a couple of years heavily involved in computational fluid dynamics code writing. But it's also at that time, a contact from the hospital found its way to me. They didn't contact me directly at that point. And it aroused the interest into the possibilities of biomedical engineering. So whilst I was busily developing a, a, an interest in aerodynamic design using computational fluid dynamics, my, my main area of expertise at that time. Some conversations with a vascular surgeon, funnily enough, that, that was really the, the spark to, to take me on that journey, whereby I was able to, over a period of time, it didn't happen instantly, of course. The aerodynamic design was a very challenging, interesting area to be working in. But what I saw the possibility for was to take the methods we were using in that discipline and see how we could use them to answer the kind of questions which were coming from vascular surgeons and then shortly afterwards cardiologists such as Nick Curzon. And Cliff Sherman, he his question was about the surgical procedures and understanding better why it is that atherosclerosis, for example, that's the disease that leads to narrowing of blood vessels, why it occurs in the carotid artery in the neck and why for some people it's far worse than others. You know, the underlying research question I think from his point of view is why would one person develop a certain narrowing of the vessels possibly leading to stroke if they had all other issues, their lifestyle and so on, their histories similar to someone else. The question underlying all of this was geometry, or as he would have described it, anatomy. As I mentioned, interaction with cardiologists actually became a richer line of um, interest. I think probably because that really began to focus on the de design of devices. So in particular, coronary artery stents, and then more recently, replacement heart valves. 
and it's through the collaboration with Nick Curzon for, for well over 12 years now. We've had a sequence of PhD students and other research projects, which culminated in, in winning this, this good grant with um, EPSERC for the study of additive manufacturing of replacement heart valves. So tell me a bit more about Redo Tavi. What's its aims? What's innovative about it? And how might it be used in the future? So I suppose I should define TAVI and redo TAVI. So TAVI is transcatheter aortic valve implantation. We have four valves in our heart and the aortic valve is the high pressure valve which typically becomes diseased and degenerates with age normally, particularly in the developed parts of the world and maybe we'll say something about the global south in due course. And when the aortic valve becomes diseased, conventionally a surgical approach will have been used to cut out the diseased valve and then suture in place a mechanical or a bioprosthetic valve. With developments of stenting, which is a transcatheter procedure, minimally invasive, with advances there and a recognition that a similar approach could be applied to replacement heart valves, so it was that TAVI was born. A replacement heart valve is passed typically through the femoral artery in the groin up and over and into the aortic valve and then that is opened by a balloon high pressure balloon or indeed there are alternative ways of doing this with uh, shaped memory alloys such that the replacement heart valve self expands when a sheath is withdrawn so ideally we would like to think that such replacement heart valves will outlast our uh, normal lifetimes but unfortunately they don't do that Allied to that is a trend towards increasing amounts of TAVI over surgical procedures and indeed in the US in 2019 the transcatheter approach numbers of, of, of TAVI procedures exceeded the number of surgical replacement valves. In both cases however degeneration of the valve leaflets occurs evidence suggests it's somewhere between 7 and 15 years. In the case of a surgical valve or indeed a transcatheter valve question is what to do next. So there are several potential alternatives. Again, the conventional approach is a surgical procedure where that diseased prosthetic valve is cut away and a new one is put in place. But certainly if that's for frail older patients, that's, that's a challenging procedure and not appropriate in many cases. So then the question comes to the possibility of using a transcatheter approach to insert a second TAVI valve inside the existing surgical valve or the existing original TAVI valve. That, that procedure is called valve in valve but we now through this project and using advanced additive manufacturing methods looking to explore the possibility for redo TAVI wherein a transcatheter approach is used to insert uh, a valve in place such that that replacement could itself be replaced. We're hearing more and more about additive manufacturing, and I think it's really interesting to hear about it in the medical application. What are you trying to achieve with AM in replacement heart valves? The state of the art, the beautiful devices, balloon expandable and self-expanding, as I mentioned before, they are typically laser cut from a tube. Now, because of our interest in design and the possibilities for redo TAVI, we wanted to explore the wider design space made possible by additive manufacturing. And hence we started on a pilot study to see whether we could print, more technically we refer to this as laser metal fusion, 
whether we could use a laser to melt metal in a 3D printing process to manufacture frames of alternative designs. Early work was very encouraging and now we face the challenge through this EPSERC funded research project over three years to fundamentally explore what really is possible. The main challenge being the, the very thin struts which make up the frame of these devices, typically around 300 microns. And the question is, can you make a device which is strong enough using additive manufacturing and indeed laser metal fusion? And are those processes being worked on at the University of Southampton, or does it involve engaging with external partners to manufacture prototypes and to do testing? So to be clear, I don't have experience in additive manufacturing. Uh, we have recruited someone with very good experience in that uh, field, Dr. Zhao Zhao. And importantly, when preparing a proposal, I'd established a relationship with an Italian additive manufacturing company. And intriguingly, that company called Sisma, Northern Italy, their main interests originally were in jewellery and in the, the additive manufacturing of precious metal jewellery. They had started working in the dental field, which often leads the way in patient-specific device design. And through their discussions with me, they saw a really interesting opportunity to see what could be achieved with, for example, replacement heart valves. And hence, they are the key collaborator in our project, bring the expertise in additive manufacturing. So in your introduction to Redo Tavi, you mentioned about applications in developed nations, but what about low-middle-income countries? How do you see potential applications from Redo Tavi working in the Global South? Yeah, so the Global South, low-to-middle-income countries are used interchangeably, particularly parts of Africa, large parts of Africa, South America, uh, the, the Far East as well. Unusually, and relative to the kind of heart disease, heart valve disease we experience in the, in the UK, in Europe, in the US, in these less well-off territories, very young people can be afflicted with uh, a streptococcal type infection, which passes to the heart valve leaflets. Now, if you keep in mind this idea of redo TAVI, if someone in their late 20s, early 30s, is afflicted with heart valve disease, the prospect of having a replacement heart valve, which is only going to last 7 to 15 years, is not terribly encouraging. So as much as anything, we're interested to, to see what can be achieved in a cost-effective way for these left, less developed nations, uh, really driven by the fact that someone receiving a replacement heart valve won't have to undergo three, four, five surgical procedures during their lifetime when the original valve leaflets that have been implanted degenerate. So it's a combination of a, a humanitarian effort with the potential for what can be achieved with these redo TAVI type approaches. So the redo TAVI project is funded for three years and you're really pushing the boundaries about what the fundamental science can do. What do you hope to prove by the end of this project? Well, I suppose the first research question is, will additive manufacturing in the way that we're proposing be a viable way to manufacture replacement heart valves? The answer that, to that question might be no. Yeah, we've got to be frank about that. This is fundamental research. However, of course, if it's looking like being a negative answer, we will investigate, and we've already started doing this by way of preempting that possible outcome.
what might be possible. So for example, with surgical replacement valves where the struts wouldn't necessarily need to be so thin, what might be achievable there again in the environment of redo TAVI. Ultimately, of course, we'd like to obtain a more positive response whereby yes, we can say it is viable under certain conditions and certain design constraints. Then we, at that point, we'd be in a position to commit to extensive mechanical testing, obviously required for regulatory approval, all leading towards a first preclinical set of studies in animal models. But both Nick Curzon and myself are very, very strongly of the opinion that we should do as much as we can with computational modeling to have a convincing story to justify uh, the use of animal models in that way. Of course, obtaining regulatory approval requires extensive mechanical testing, as I described, extensive animal model uh, analysis, and then obviously one will be in a position for uh, first in human type trials. So we've definitely had an increasing awareness of the role of mesodons regulators as we've all eagerly followed the process of approval for vaccinations. What considerations do you have for choosing the regulatory environment that you may wish to pursue the next phase of testing in? Okay, that's that's a, a challenging question from the point of view that we're at a very early stage in what we're trying to achieve. But that said, we've already started speaking to some of the regulatory authorities NICE in the UK, the National Institute for Clinical and Health Excellence, I think it stands for. We've had some conversations with them, preparing the groundwork for what we would need to do and so that they're aware of what we're doing. And of course, ultimately, we'd need to go through the MHRA. To that end, we're keeping detailed reports of everything we're doing, particularly on a technical basis, such that that material can be readily used in a technical file, which obviously needs to be produced when applying for regulatory authority, um, regulatory approval. How that will play out in, in other nations, particularly in the US, of course, with the, the FDA, the Food and Drug um, Administration, um, remains to be seen. But uh, at the moment, we're focused on the UK and, um, and what that will involve in these early stages. I expect once the relationship with the EU has settled down post-Brexit, we'll have a better idea of how to proceed in the EU as well. Brilliant. Thanks so much for finding the time to be able to speak to us today, Neil. Links are in the show notes to be able to find out more about the project. In the meantime, I've been Giles. This has been Policy Pod. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and recommend wherever you get your podcast. It really does help to make us more visible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the patience, perseverance and positivity of Teo Kuriaki in Public Policy Southampton, Kate Briggs-Price and Ben McQuig in Keep Busy Productions. Our music is by University of Southampton composition student Paul Forster. If you want to find out more about our work, you can find us on Twitter at Public Policy UR on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash public policy UOS and on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash showcase forward slash public policy UOS. Until next time, goodbye.